I'd like to speak today on Colombia, and I'm really grateful that last night at the conference dinner I had an excellent introduction actually to the topic with Ingrid Betancourt talking about um, the issue of Colombia. And <coughs> as she mentioned, in Colombia currently um, they have peace negotiations, so it's a really hot topic at the moment. And, and these peace negotiations between the Colombian government and um, the biggest rebel group of the country, the FARC, um, one of the conditions was that there's no ceasefire. So fighting continues despite um, the talks that go on. And <clears throat> accordingly, Colombia continues to put military pressure on the violent conflict hotspots in the scope of the counter-terrorist um, strategies. And currently, this is the Operación um, Espada de Honor. So fighting goes on. Some argue that framing them as counter-terrorism is important. It's important to keep um, the moral of the soldiers high, and that's why within the military this terminology is used despite the peace talks. Um, although it's not as strongly criticized anymore as it used to be um, under former President Uribe, there's still many um, scholars and analysts arguing that the military component should be complemented better by the civilian com uh, component. And what I want to argue is that it's not only about complementing the mil military focus with the um, civilian focus, but it's also about um, looking spatially where should we focus on. Because so far the focus is mostly on what is in the literature called ungoverned spaces, that's Rabasa, for example, or what is called um, the black spots. This is what Stanislavski says. And my argument is that we should also look at the calmer spaces, the peripheral spaces, um, because they are illicitly governed spaces rather than ungoverned spaces. So um, I argue that this is important for enhancing sustainable peace if we understand peace as peace for citizens on the ground and not only as a peace agreement on the top level. And in the presentation now, I'd like to focus on, on three points why this is important. The first one is to revert what I call shadow citizenship. The second one is to address the cocaine business, which, as you all know, is um, still thriving in Colombia. And third, to mitigate the rule of silence. And I'd like to take you now with some pictures to the borderlands, <coughs> to what you probably would say is the Indiana Jones trip. <laughs> and um, this is based on my fieldwork, um, 12 months in the region. So I've been working, um, doing interviews, not only in the capital cities of Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador, but I also traveled along the Colombian-Ecuadorian and the Colombian-Venezuelan um, border, and did interviews with um, ex-combatants, with military officials, refugees, different, different sources. <coughs> so why borderlands? Um, Basically, because this is where the presence of these many different kinds of violent non-state actors, so rebel groups, paramilitary groups, drug trafficking groups, um, where these pre their presence is extremely intense, because in Colombia the conflict dynamics have shifted <coughs> from the center towards the, the margins, the peripheries. And secondly, because borderlands um, in the Andean region have been historically marginalized areas, which means that state institutions are deficient, if not absent. So it's very easy for these actors to, to take a space. And this is what you can see 
from these pictures. Um, <clears throat> state is absent, so people have to basically themselves engage in building um, a proper infrastructure. So here you can see how people themselves repair a bridge, charge tolls to rebuild the streets, and just basically do business by themselves. And violent non-state actors, rather than engaging in violence in some of these places, um, they take over state functions, um, which leads to what I call shadow citizenship. So similar to citizenship as understood um, um, according to democratic theory, there is some kind of social contract between these violent non-state actors and society instead of the state and society. These actors provide goods and services and are to some extent also responsive and citizens, on the other hand, um, respect their rules and at times also make demands. So what do I mean exactly by, by the citizen, um, shadow citizenship? Um, I'd like to look at two examples here. One is um, the case of the FARC in Putumayo at the border with Ecuador, just you can see below. And the other one is in Apure, which is actually on the Venezuelan side. So it's in the borderlands, but on the Venezuelan side, where the ELN, which is a Colombian um, rebel group, actually has control, which is more or less neglected by, by the government. So in the case of Putumayo, um, the FARC is still very present, but um, mostly in the 90s, it basically was the sole authority. And I talked to farmers there, and one quotation is that a farmer told me, at least we had our land, our farm, and they helped us to feed our families. And in fact, um, what the FARC did there was they, they established health centers, they built road infrastructure, and they provide um, economic opportunities. And that's why they were viewed as effective at getting things done, more effective than a state. This translates for many locals into a belief that the violent non-state actors have good leadership and that they take care of their own and those um, who assist them. And this in turn, can lead civilians to socially recognize um, these actors and ultimately to also actively support them. Still, it's only the shadow of citizenship um, because there are no means for citizens to restrain their violence if they don't want to, and these actors cannot be brought to court. The other example in Apure is what I find extremely interesting because it is on the Venezuelan side of the border. So while um, conflict analysts usually pay attention to the Colombian side, to Arauca, which is a conflict hotspot at the moment, um, what is actually going on on the other side is completely neglected. And on the other side, the ELN um, provides services. The ELN establishes some kind of, of citizenship. And what was really interesting was when I talked to a, a local farmer there, and she, she explained to me that what they do is they establish rules of coexistence. So um, they tell people that they should clean the roads, keep animals within a certain area, or otherwise they'd have to pay a fine. And they believe that these rules actually help them to better handle everyday concerns without restricting their freedom to, through um, strict rules such as dress codes or curfews. So then I asked her, um, have there also been rules which you didn't like? And she told me, the issue of cutting wood, we are not allowed to cut green wood. I don't think that this is good, because where are we then going to sow seeds? If we live in the countryside and we cannot sow seeds, what are we going to eat? 
So then I asked her, um, did they explain to you why, why they imposed this rule? And she said, yes, they said we could, tell, we, we could fell three hectares of trees. More than that would be bad. And while she keeps on explaining that to me, um, she criticized the type of rule, but she did not call into question the fact that it was established by the guerrilla group, instead of, which is even um, a foreign group instead of the own state, and which is also imposed by anti-democratic means. So the implication of that is that in such illicitly governed spaces, um, a sh kind of shadow community emerges without outsiders even noticing because people, like the farmer, they just say, well, everything is fine. It's not seen as something which should not be the way it is. It's normalized. And the state, ignorant about the exact dynamics in such territories, therefore loses part of its citizenry, leading to a fragmentation of citizenship, so to say. So now I'd like to come to... Oh, this is Apure. Sorry, skipped the late. <laughs> the second point, um, which is about the drug business, cocaine trade, if, which if you want to understand conflict in the current conflict and the dynamics in Colombia, you, you have to look at how it is also fooled. So in Apure, what I just mentioned, which is on the Venezuelan side, but which features conflict actors of the, um, of the Colombian side, um, there is presence, well, of these conflict actors, but the reason behind it is much to do with the drug trade. So in this point, it is important to know that um, many of the fronts of the FARC so they are combating fronts, and they are also financing logistics fronts. And, and these financing and logistics fronts, they are usually in the borderlands, because these are the sites um, which are most important for them for international trafficking. And the big trafficking deals are um, done in these areas, which you can see at this satellite image. So this is um, Latin America, Central America, and here you can see how the flights of um, cocaine loads have been tracked. So what happened here is that in 2012, clandestine airstrips were discovered from which airplanes loaded with cocaine took off to the Caribbean and Central America. So all the red dots or lines that start here, this is Apure. Um, they are there because these airstrips can only be there because it's an illicitly governed space. There's no state, no one knew what's ever going on. It is jungle. And that's how they can basically continue um, with attracted with these big deals. But then also on a smaller scale, um, this is important. In the case of the Colombian-Ecuadorian border, the military control focuses on two, only two official border crossings, which are Romichaca and San Miguel. But then there are also up to 87 illegal border crossings. And some of these unofficial crossings are in territories governed by the FARC, but also by ELN and others by the Rastrojos, which is one of the drug trafficking groups. And they use these border crossings to smuggle um, drugs and arms. So now what about people living in these territories? Um, they usually know what's going on because they often have jobs in these activities since they're very lucrative. And they typically respect the rules of the game of the shadow authority because of these economic opportunities that people are offered. One example is a um, fisherman in 2009. When he used to work as a fisher, um, he earned $50 per week. But then he opted to work as a raspachin, which is the coca leaves collector, 
And this means um, that he made between 600 and 800 US dollars per week. Consequently, people take huge risks to do these jobs. And this means also that they often are threatened, well, their lives are threatened. Also, for example, mullahs. Those are the ones who traffic the cocaine from one side of the border to the other side of the border. And there were cases um, where they trafficked in um, bodies of dead babies, where they trafficked um, in implantates, and <coughs> where they also always have to um, face harassment of police officers. The risk um, arises not only from the illegal nature of their work, but also because of the ways in which shadow citizenship is established. So contrary to the cases that I discussed before, the shadow citizenship where there's just one single group, in these cases of the cocaine business, there are usually more people, more groups involved because they are transactions. So this is kind of a division of labor among the cocaine supply chain, and that's why there are transactions among different groups. This means that these groups um, cooperate in the business, but they're still mistrust. They're often paramilitary against um, rebel groups. And this, again, um, has repercussions on the civil society since they have to face the mistrust. And one example is here. Um, these are graffitis in Arauca and in Norte Santander. Where you can see clearly that they mark their territory. So they clearly say, FARC, we are here, ALN, we are here. And this is because the other groups are so close. Well, the implications for civilians is that um, they usually face very strict rules of behavior um, regarding where they are allowed to, do, to go, what they are allowed to do, and also what kind of punishment is applied. Here are more examples. So the implication of that is that, on the one hand, these illicitly governed spaces are convenient for these actors to continue being involved in the truck trade, and have an important income source that fuels the conflict. But on the other hand, and what I would like to focus on more is it has also, it has also implications for people on the ground because it means having to live in a constant state of mistrust. And since they work in these areas as well, being accused by the state um, to be FARC collaborators, for example, or to be accomplices in, uh, of the drug traffickers. So it's more than the abandonment of the state, as in the case of the shadow citizenship, where one single group is dominant. It also fuels resentments against the state for being misunderstood, since it tends to be ignored that these economic opportunities are often only, well, the only viable options that they have to make a, to make a living. And that's why their support is often not only based on consent, but on fear. This brings me to the last point, um, fear which often um, results in the rule of silence. So the rule of silence um, is an important invisible consequence of social control in these illicitly governed spaces. And here again, the problem is that without being quantifiable, without being visible, it tends to be ignored. So when the authority of these violent onset actors is based on fear, we often know even less about what is going on because there's little violence as long as people comply comply with the imposed rules, and people don't talk about it because they are afraid of the consequences, and that's the rule of violence. And here I'd like to show you a map. This is Nariño. It's the um, Colombian department that borders with Ecuador. And <clears throat> this shows that taking into account areas with rule of silence alters hugely the conflict panorama. So here, the green spaces um, are the parts where mass displacements 
have been taking place. So analysis of conflict usually look at homicide rates, violence, violent crime, and mass displacement. And then you could see that, um, especially at the left side, which is um, the coastal line, um, there's lots of violence going on. And this is the hotspot right now, and this is where um, analysts focus on. I tried to change this map a bit and look at what is going on in the other places. And what I found is that actually um, much of the space which was white is now red because these are the places where confinement is taking place and where there are restrictions to, to access. So what happens there is there might not be mass displacements or homicides, but on the other hand, um, they face strict rules. Civil society is confined. They can't leave the territory anymore, and human agencies are even told to stay out. So what the, in some of these cases, it's the FARC, what they tell people is don't talk to any human rights persons, don't mention the issue of human rights, otherwise we punish you. So people, when they ask, they say, well, everything is fine, um, we don't need your help, but this is because they are under um, the pressure. And it's not always that um, obvious, as in the case of confinement. It's sometimes even more subtle, and this again um, was told to me at the border with Ecuador and someone who was affected on the Ecuadorian side. So what he told me was um, that the FARC showed him that they had gathered 80 photographs of him yeah, thanks. Um, in numerous locations during different activities over the last six months. And a colleague um, had been gathered, on the colleague had been gathered 1,000 photographs. So I asked him, and why did they show you the pictures? And he told me, to tell us that we are marked, that they did intelligence on us. And I was scared. This is a way of terrifying people too, isn't it? So people are put pressure upon by mechanisms such as these intelligence, um, taking pictures, only to show that they have to stick to the rules, that they should keep to the rule, um, stick to the rule of silence in order not to be punished. So the implications are, since their voice is silence, people are left alone with a constant feeling of fear and insecurity. And this, of course, can have psychological effects which contribute to the erosion of the social fabric on the long run. So to conclude, <laughs> um, let me summarize the three points that arise from analyzing the dynamics in illicitly governed spaces. So first, <clears throat> since these spaces contribute to the fragmentation of citizenship of society, it is important to revert um, the shadow citizenship by establishing the Columbus state's credibility and legitimacy among communities who have lived for decades under the authority um, of such groups. And this even extends beyond the borderline, which has been seen in the case of Venezuela. Second, um, I think it's important to address um, the cocaine business differently. So on the one hand, of course, there's this issue of bringing state institutions in to reduce opportunities to engage in the drug trade in these illicitly governed spaces. But then on the other hand, there's also the issue of a closer engagement with the society and not only um, demonizing them as, as collaborators. And then third, and maybe most importantly, it is important to mitigate the negative long-term consequences on the citizenry um, social fabric and on mental health. And this in combination with the normalization of violence that is ta taking place um, is what I think really, really urgent. For example, in, in Arauca, one of the hotspots, um, in the week I was there, um, four um, teenagers' suicide happened. And this is related to how people deal with the psychological pressure and with what is going on in the country. And as of 2011, according to a report of the 
Doctors Without Borders, Colombia spent only 0.1% of their health budget on mental health. And I think it really needs to be rethought to what extent this is actually relevant to society or not. So here I'd like to refer back to what Ingrid Betangur said yesterday in the speech as well about the relevance of hope. And I think in order to build sustainable peace, we have to see how we can create incentives or how we can foster hope, not only from the top level, but also in these spaces where people are governed by these actors. Thank you. <laughs>